Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Uh, there's an old atheist argument that if God were all-powerful, he, uh, he could destroy evil. If God were all good, he would want to destroy evil. But there's evil in the world. Therefore, the atheist argues that either God's not all-powerful and he can't destroy evil, or he's not all-good and he doesn't want to destroy evil. This morning we're going to begin a study of the Gospel of Luke. We're kind of picking up from our study on Advent over the Christmas holidays, or the Christmas season. We kind of looked at Luke's version of the story of Jesus and his birth. We're going to continue that story for the next number of weeks. It'll take us a while, perhaps, to get through the Gospel of Luke. And the question that we're asking ourselves, and the title for this series is, Who is this man? Who is this man? Uh, it, it, it's a lot more than what we've come to think in many, 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 many ways. And let me actually give you a warning. And that is, as we find out who this man is, as we come to know who this man is, as we come to know what he says and what he wants and what he, te- what he asks us to do, it ain't going to be easy. And in fact, when the kids are dismissed, if you want to like leave too, you're welcome to do so. Because the challenge of finding out who this man is, is a challenge that's great. Open them up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. I looked to find the page number and then I forgot what it is. So if anybody has the page number in the Pew Bibles, let me know. You gotta make one mistake. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's only the beginning, Mark, so make, make one mistake, yeah. So, Luke chapter 2, um, the question is, who is Jesus? When you study world religions, the question that all, all world religions have to revolve around, of course, is the question of, um, so I made another mistake, I left my phone down there too, so you're probably wondering about this. Sorry, James. The question all religions are revolving around is the question of um, what is humanity's problem? What is humanity's problem? Each religion has its own answer to the question. The story of Buddhism uh, is the story of a man named Siddhartha Gautama who was born around the 6th century BC, about five, 600 years before Jesus. Uh, Buddha was born, his name means the enlightened one, Siddhartha Gautama. Uh, was born the, the son of a king. Uh, at his birth, according to the story, some stories say that when Siddhartha Gautama was born, he, he came out walking and talking, uh, miraculously. But a prophet came along to Siddhartha Gautama and told his father that his son would either be a great king, a great military leader, or a spiritual leader. So his father decided that he wanted to make sure that his son would be a, be a great king, and he tried to keep him inside the palace so that he couldn't see anything outside the world or anything that was going on in the world at all. According to the custom, Siddhartha Gautama married about the age of 16, and he lived this life in the palace for another 13 years. Then one day he said he wanted to venture outside the palace and see what was outside. His father had assured him that everything outside the palace was nothing different than what was inside the palace. That way he would keep him in. So they ordered the streets to be cleaned and cleared and everything else, you know, so that everyone would look just like it was in the palace but not everybody got the memo. So as he was walking down the road, he saw an old man, and he says, What's, what, you know, what, what happened to him? And he was explaining to him, well, everyone gets old. And then he saw a man that was sick and, and, and diseased, and he says, what, happen, what, what happened to him? Well, everyone gets sick. And then there was a funeral procession going by. 
And he asked, what, what, hap what, what happened there? Well, everyone will die. And then he met an ascetic, a, a monk, a, and he saw the, the contemplative look, and he says, that's the life for me. So Siddhartha Gautama, according to the story about age 29, left his wife and his child, left the life in the palace, and went off to find enlightenment. A number of years later, while sitting under a tree that the uh, Buddhists call the body tree, uh, he, he, he um, was meditating and praying for a long time, period of time until eventually enlightenment came to him. And uh, enlightenment for Siddhartha Gautama uh, meant the answer to suffering. See, in Buddhism, the problem of man, the problem of humanity is the problem of suffering. And the way one rids oneself of suffering, Siddhartha Gautama found, was to rid oneself of all desires. If you rid oneself of your desires, then you rid oneself of your suffering, because suffering is the cause of desires. He went on to say you know, that you have to follow the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and if you do these things, you can rid yourself of desires, and in doing so, you will rid yourself of suffering. The story of Islam is a story of a man named Muhammad who lived in the year 530 or so. He begins the, he begins the religion, uh, born, I'm sorry, born in the year 570. About the year 630, he founds the religion what we call Islam, about 600 years after the time of Jesus. Uh, Muhammad, according to the story, was born in Mecca, uh, which is now the holiest city in Islam. Uh, and that city of Mecca had a, a place, a shrine in the center of the city, which Muslims today call the Kaaba, which at the time of Muhammad was the center of idolatry. There were hundreds and hundreds of gods, and the people of Mecca would come to the shrine and they'd worship all these gods. But Muhammad couldn't understand the depravity of the city around him. It was a deplorable city. The people weren't cared for, the poor weren't cared for, and yet they all seemed very, very religious. So Muhammad left Mecca and spent some time in a cave and was thinking about these things and contemplating what was going on. And it was there that he received his first vision from God, from Allah. Muhammad felt that people needed to hear the vision, and, and, and for him, he went back to Mecca, but the people wouldn't listen. Because, you see, for Muhammad, the vision was that there's only one God. And they worship gods, and many, 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 many gods. And so they rejected his message, and he withdraws to the city of Medina. The withdrawal from Muhammad from Mecca to Medina, by the way, is the founding of Islam. It's the founding of all Muslim calendars. The Islamic calendars date themselves by the date of the flight when Muhammad left Mecca to Medina. Muhammad goes later on, you may know the story a little bit, and conquers Mecca and begins to take over uh, much of, of that part of the world. In Islam, man's problem is forgetfulness. Man's problem is forgetfulness. You see, Islam teaches that all people are born Muslim. All people know God and know who He is and what He wants, but they forget. The solution is to remember and to embrace Allah. You become a Muslim by citing the Muslim uh, creed, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. From that point forward, then you try to follow the path of Islam, remembering your story. The story of Judaism is the story of a man named Abraham, chosen by God to be the means to which God would save the world. God promised that he'd bless all the nations through Abraham and through his offspring. Of course, many of the Israelites and followers of Judaism forget the fact that they are to be the saviors of the world and think of themselves as the chosen race. The rest, everybody else is going to have to suffer, but at least we're chosen. We know the story of Abraham a lot as, as Christians studying the scriptures, and the story goes on that they failed to obey God's covenant. And they were then ultimately destroyed by foreign nations. 
The last destruction, the major destruction, came in the year 70 A.D., about 40 years after, after the time of Jesus, when the temple was leveled. There was a, a minor uprising of the Jewish people in the year 133, and that was squelched in the year 135. According to Judaism, man's problem is sin and disobedience. And the solution is to receive mercy by being obedient to God's law. We open up the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read about the story of Jesus. And we ask ourselves the question, who is this man? What's going on? And we're going to make our way into John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 21 and through the end of the chapter, the first uh, chapter of the Gospel of, uh, sorry, the gospel of Luke, uh, uh, Luke chapter 2. We're going to end, end, of the, end of the second chapter. The Gospel of Luke begins in the temple. Luke chapter 1, a man named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who want to have children but can't have children, Zechariah is in the temple. Chapter 2 is going to end with Jesus in the temple. And that's Luke's way of framing a section. Begins in the temple, ends in the temple. It starts off by telling us about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, then Jesus. First it was Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're going to have a child. Then it was Mary, she's going to have a child. Then John the Baptist is born, then Jesus is born. And this alternating between John the Baptist and Jesus. In a sense, Luke is comparing John the Baptist and Jesus. And the comparisons are there. I mean, they're both born of, uh, of parents that, that, that were barren. At least Elizabeth and, 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 Mary, and Zechariah were barren, and, and Mary was a virgin. And then John is the one who paves the way, but Jesus is the one who is the way. John's the forerunner to the king, but Jesus is the king. Jesus is clearly superior to John the Baptist. We'll pick it up in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. On the eighth day after Jesus was born now, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. The, angel, uh, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to, have him, to present him to the Lord. Uh, verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Joseph and Mary are portrayed throughout this story as very pious, very religious, very righteous people. So on the eighth day, the, the, the day the law prescribes for a child to be circumcised, this child was brought to the temple and was circumcised. Now Jews would name children sometimes on the day they were born, but oftentimes on the eighth day, the day of their circumcision. So they're pious, they're faithful Israelites, uh, fulfilling what the law requires. And going, to, uh, and, and going to the temple as prescribed. Now, we also have an indication that Joseph and Mary were poor. Because even though Luke quotes the scripture, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, the law, that's actually a provision of the law for the poor. Because the law actually requires you to sacrifice a lamb. But if you can't afford a lamb, you can have two uh, uh, doves or two young pigeons. So apparently, this is a poor family. Verse 23 now. <clears throat> Now, uh, I'm skipping down to verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on, upon him. It had been revealed to him that the Holy, by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Skipping down to verse 27, the middle of verse 27. When the parents brought the child Jesus uh, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all, all the nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. 
I love this story for a number of reasons, but here's a man named Simeon from the southern tribes of Judah, a righteous and devout man. He was promised that he would not die until he saw the Lord. And he basically says, thank you, God, now I can die. I mean, that's what it is. Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you can dismiss your servant in peace. That's a nice way of saying, I can die. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light of revelation for the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah, and it's significant. This is who Jesus is. He's the light of revelation to all the nations. Skipping down to verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Not the comforting words that Mary and Joseph were wanting to hear. This child will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. He'll be a sign that's spoken against many hearts, and he'll pierce your own soul with a sword. There's something about this child that's, he's more than just a child. He's more than just the Savior of the world. Something greater is happening. Verse 36. There was also a prophet or a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. That's one translation. Another way of translating that same verse would be she was a widow for 84 years. So married seven, widowed 84. Okay, so there's something interesting with the math that we might discuss just briefly. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at the, at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. You've got to be careful with numbers and with what people do with numbers uh, in Scripture, especially when people take the numbers in the Bible and say, therefore it means that in July of this year, da-da-da-da, Jesus is going to return. Don't listen to that stuff. Okay, but numbers are often very significant. She was married seven years, and seven is a very important number in Scripture, referencing completion or perfection. We know the creation took seven days. There are seven churches in the book of Revelation. Key names for God appear seven times in the book of Revelation. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Seven's at a prominent number. And it often refers to completion or perfection, sometimes even referencing God himself. She was married seven years, but she was widowed. I think the translation should be, she was a widow for 84 years. 84 is 7 times 12. 12 is the number for the people of God. 7 times 12 means the number for the people of God has come to completion. Both Simeon and Anna were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem for the restoration of Israel. These big words like consolation. All it means is they're waiting for God's promises to Israel to be fulfilled. Lord, when are you going to fulfill these promises? Simeon, you won't die until you see the Messiah. Now I can depart in peace, says Simeon. Here's this woman, Anna, a prophetess. She never left the temple Worshipping, day and night, fasting, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Simeon and Anna represent a prophet and a prophetess. 
a prophet and a prophetess. There, it's a male and a female, probably representing all of Israel or all of humanity. Adam and Eve, if you want to think of it in that sense there. This is, the, this is all of humanity. Simeon is from the southern tribe of, of Judah, and she is from Asher, which is one of the northern tribes of Israel. If, if you're not aware here, this map shows you that uh, uh, in the middle of the Old Testament era, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom became divided. The, the southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom is Israel. So most of what we call the Old Testament, most of the history of the Old Testament, is this divided kingdom. It's not one nation called Israel. It's two nations. The northern is Israel, and the southern is Judah. Well, she's from the tribe of Asher, which is highly raises a lot of questions that we won't take time by any means this morning to, to answer. But she's from the north, and he's from the south. She's a male. He's a female. She's a prophet. They're both prophets. Um, they're both, of course, righteous. Very righteous, of course. They don't leave the temple, etc. They're both associated with the temple, and we know how important the temple is in Scripture, let alone this story. And they're both old. They're both old, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, chapter 2, verse 41, uh, it says that every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Twelve years old is interesting because this is the only story of Jesus in his childhood. We have the, the birth stories up until maybe about two years of age. Then we have him 30 years of age being baptized by John the Baptist. And now the only story in all the Gospels about Jesus in his youth. He's 12 years old. Apparently, again, indicating very righteous parents because every year... They went up to the, to the festival of the Passover according to the custom. Now, the Old Testament law actually requires Israelites to travel to Jerusalem three times a year. Uh, Joseph and Mary are not being like less devout because they only go once a year. The, the reality is, is that since the Jewish people are now scattered around the Roman world, some as far as Rome, it's just impractical, if not impossible, for a good Jew, even a righteous, pious Jew, to get to Jerusalem more than one time a year. So they would often travel for the Feast of Passover. That's the one that has the less economic factors. In other words, it's not during the time of sowing or the time of harvesting. It, it, it's just easier to travel. You know, some, of, some of them are during the rainy season. So Passover is like hopefully right at the end of the rainy season. If you can't make it because of the rains, then maybe you'll come to the Feast of Pentecost. But nonetheless, if you can go to any one feast, you go to the Feast of Passover. Well, after the festival was over, verse 43 says, his parents were returning home. This is back to Nazareth up in the north now about a three-and-a-half-day journey. The boy Jews stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, numbers are often important, they found him in the temple courts. The temple is always important. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. Verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. The story raises a few questions, of course, 
uh, you know, how can the parents leave behind their kid? And, but the custom would be that when a, a large group of people traveling back up to the north, uh, for, having come to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, uh, the men would often travel with the men, probably talking about the Patriots football game and their win last night. You guys saw, I know Dustin saw that. Uh, um, but uh, talking sports and things of that nature. And the women will be traveling and, and talking, talking together. And the kids will be traveling together as well, often with an adult escort. Probably Mary and Joseph probably each assumed that the other parent had been responsible that their child Jesus was with all the kids. At the end of their one-day travel, they go to make camp for the night. Like where it was, it was that night. In other words, it was the first night of travel that they realized Jesus is not with them. So then the next morning they travel again. Remember, they travel a day's journey. So they go a second day, a day's journey back to Jerusalem. It's nightfall when they get there. The third day. They begin searching for Jesus, and they find him in the temple. Now, at the same time, it seems like Jesus is being insolent and, and a little, you know, what are you looking for me for? That, that's not what's going on. In fact, verses 51 and 52 uh, say, they went down to Nazareth with them. Uh, he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But he, his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and, and in favor with God and man. He's not being insolent and, and, and a brat like, what are you looking for me for? It's like, you should have known where I was. I had to be in my father's house. Now it's interesting because it seems to be that Jesus has some understanding at 12 as to who he is. But notice, he grew in wisdom and in stature. He doesn't know everything. But he's growing, in, but at least at 12, he knows who he is to some extent. And what he does, mean, what he does know is, I have to be in the temple because that's where I should be. Now, in the temple, it says that the, the, they were asking questions, and, and, and uh, uh, Jesus was asking questions. Jesus is actually being portrayed here as in the posture of a teacher. Because what happens is a student asks a question in that day. The rabbi a answers with a question. And then the students answer the rabbi's question. The major means of teaching for a rabbi was to ask questions to elicit answers from them and then guide them in the, what's the proper answer. Jesus is being portrayed as being in the temple as a teacher. And they were amazed at his answers. All right, the question then is, what does this mean for us now in the 21st century here? And, and of course, the question is, who is this man? Who is this man? And I want to encourage us and exhort us on this. He is more than just the Savior of the world. That's an easy answer for us as Christians when we've come to, come to, it's true and we've come to embrace it, but I was having a conversation, and let me, I hope in this context, it's hard when we, uh, preaching is not the best context sometimes because there's no interaction from you guys, right? You know, uh, about, so I hope you understand what I'm going to say here. I had a conversation with some younger Christians, uh, 25 to 35 year olds, raised in the church, raised in the church, and they said to me, the church lied to us. And they weren't happy about it. They lied to us. I said, what do you mean by that? Flush that out. They said, we grew up and we were raised, Sunday school classes in church, with the idea that if we just accept Jesus as our Savior, that's all you need. As though it makes no difference in the world, it makes no difference in life, it has no difference on the society, it doesn't affect them at all. You just accept Jesus as your Savior and you're good to go. And if you're not aware of millennials, right? Millennials are concerned about justice. 
They're concerned about the world. They're concerned about poverty. They're concerned about crime. They're concerned about, about uh, uh, war. The, their Jesus has to make a difference in the world or they don't want that Jesus. And when they come to realize that Jesus is here to make a difference in the world, they're like, our church lied to us. We, now, by the way, they haven't left the church. They're, they're, well, they're, they're well in the church. But when we, when we conclude, who is this man? And conclude, oh, he's just the savior of the world. Then we're missing something. I want to begin by exploring this question of explaining Jesus by saying this. He is God who has come to establish his kingdom. He is the king and he is the Lord. But the key, thank you. I'm preaching at least to one. <laughs> the key is... His kingdom is not some distant kingdom. It's not some aloof kingdom. It's not some spiritual kingdom. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he came to establish his kingdom. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now all religions have a story as to what the problem is. But there's something different about the story of Christ and the story of Christianity. And we begin by noting that the King, the, the Christ, the Messiah, whether it's the enlightened one of Buddha or the, the great prophet of Islam, the, the coming of Jesus is different. Jesus seems to not know everything. He's, he's uh, surprised that his parents didn't know that he should have been in the temple. And he's growing in wisdom and in stature. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, it says he, he doesn't know the hour of his return. Only the Father knows that. In the Gospel of John, he was weary from his journey. And in John 19, he says, I am thirsty. There's, there's this humanity to this Jesus, to this, to this person who's intervening in, in, in the middle of our creation, in the middle of our story. And I, I would say it this way. The story of Christianity is the story of God becoming king and restoring his rule over creation. That's the story. It's the story that began in Genesis, that ends in Revelation. This is the story of God becoming the king and restoring his rule over his creation. And this, I think, presents a problem when you look at other religions and other ideas of, of, of what they think the problem is and their solutions. For one, I started with atheism at the beginning. I said, you know, atheism has this famous riddle that they use against Christianity. If, if God were all-powerful, he could destroy evil. And if God were all-good, he wants to destroy evil. But evil hasn't been destroyed. Therefore, the God's not all-powerful. The God's not all-good. The problem is, is that the atheist can't actually make that statement. And the reason for that is, is this. If atheism were true... All right, I hope I don't go right here, but let, let, let's see what we can do. All right. If atheism were true, then there's no God. Right? All right? If there's no God, then essentially mankind, maybe the aliens, whatever, they're not much better than us if they are, whatever. All right. Essentially, we are the best there is. We're the most intelligent thing in all the universe, and we're the source of knowledge and truth. But here's the reality. We don't know all knowledge. We don't know all truth. And the reality then becomes there can't be any absolute source for knowledge or truth. There can't be any absolute truths. There can't be any absolute source for morality. There can't be any absolute good or any absolute evil. Because to have absolute good or absolute evil, you need a source for that. And if atheism is true, there's no source. So when the atheist says, there's too much evil in the world for God to exist, the answer becomes, what evil are you talking about? What do you mean evil? Because the reality is, what one society thinks is evil, another society might not. 
The Germans said it was okay to kill Jews. We imposed our will on them, but who's to say we're right and they're not? No, obviously we say, well, there's a conscience. There's innateness that we all know. That We all know that some things are wrong. You can't do those things to children. But the reality becomes the only way we can know those things are wrong is if there's a God. So the atheist argument actually doesn't work. And by the way, the other answer to the atheist, you know, why hasn't God defeated evil? If he's all good, he wants to, and if he's all powerful, he can. The answer is, he hasn't done it yet. He's in the process of doing so, and that's what the death and resurrection of Christ is all about. He's in the process of restoring his creation, of defeating evil and death, and of conquering and of restoring his creation. But here's the deal. If he would have done it a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago as the atheist wants, we'd all be condemned. The reason why God's waiting is because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to salvation. He's giving us time to repent. When the church, by the way, has done its job of proclaiming the gospel to the nations, eventually, at some point, Christ will return and defeat evil. Ultimately, and finally, and fully. The problem with uh, you know, um, uh, the, the, the idea of Buddhism, and, and again, when I speak of other religions, I, I, you know, we respect these people, we respect their rights, their, their beliefs, their convictions, the, 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 to believe what they believe, they're, they're beings made in God's value, they're human, they're, they have free will, and, and, and we respect that. Right? So we're not speaking badly about the religion or, or, or about them, but we're, asking, we're evaluating them on the question of truth. Are they true or not? Uh, and, and that's a valid claim and a valid thing. We, that, that, that's what politicians do, whether it's left or the right. Well, what's true? What's right? Uh, so my, my response to the idea that, that the problem of, 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 of the world is suffering and that to alleviate suffering is to alleviate desires, the reality is I'm human. I can't get rid of my desires. The whole point of the fact that in Buddhism is that suffering is caused by my desires. That's the point. I can't get rid of them. I'm the cause of the problem. I can't be the solution to the problem. We need something else to redeem me so that I can be saved and overcome. But I can't do it. Uh, humanity, we can't do it. We're all fallen. The idea in Islam that if you simply uh, uh, follow the, the, the ways of Islam, that, that, that Allah will bring you in, uh, I think has a major problem with justice. It would be like this. It would be like, suppose you lived a, you know, a, a horrible life or committed various crimes, even maybe not a horrible life, you, you just committed some crimes for the first 25 years of your life, and, and then you go to the judge, and the judge says, well, here's the deal. If you live a, a good life from this point forward, I'll, I'll forget all that. Sounds noble. Sounds like he's merciful. But it's not just. There's no justice. What happened to all the crimes I committed the first 25 years? How could God just, like, forgive all that? We know in society, by the way, when you commit a crime of murder, you've, you've committed a crime against other people. And the judge can't go, well, as long as you live a good life now, I'll let all that go. That's not just to those who've suffered at your hand of your crimes. So the reality becomes there must be a means of, of, of justice to be served. Ironically, and I say this, and I say this with respect, Islam says God's highest attribute is justice. But allowing anyone into heaven without their sins being atoned for is actually an, an act, I would say, of injustice. When we come to the story of Christianity, the, 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 I would say this. According to Christianity, the problem is death. The problem is not sin. You see, I think that's the problem, that we've made sin the problem. 
We made Jesus our Savior as though that's all he is. Because when we talk about Christianity, we say the problem is sin. No, sin brought about death, but death is the problem. When God said to Adam and Eve, if you do this, you will be sinners forever. No, he said, if you do this, you will die. Death is the problem. Death is what must be defeated and what must be overcome. Sin is what brought it about. And this raises a question then when you read the Gospels. You see, if all we needed Jesus to do was, was to be our Savior and, and, you know, and, and pay for our sins, and he does that on the cross, which is obviously central to the Christian theology, don't misunderstand me, and the resurrection as well, if that's all that we needed, and so if that's all Jesus was doing was just simply providing even just the atonement, then why are the Gospels so long? The Gospel of Matthew has two chapters about his life, about his birth, and then 26, 27, and 28 are about his death. But there's 23 chapters in the middle. 23 chapters of Jesus doing all kinds of other things. The Gospel of Mark doesn't even have his birth in it. But his death doesn't begin until chapter 14. So why are the first three, 13 chapters? What are they about? Why doesn't, he just, why doesn't God just come and then die on the cross, rise again, and then we're all good, we can go to heaven when we die? The Gospel of Luke has two chapters on his birth. And then chapters 26, 27, uh, I'm sorry, 22, 23, and 24 about his death. Why, why is the Gospel of John has no birth and his death doesn't begin until chapter 18? 17 chapters in the Gospel of John about what, what we call the middle, the, the life, the teachings, the ministry of Jesus. Something more is going on. He's more than just the Savior. And what we want to do as we look through the Gospels of Luke intently, we're going to find out that Jesus is not just offering some escape from the world, some escape from our desires, some free ticket to heaven. He's offering us life in his kingdom. And the something more, the 23 chapters in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, explains what life in the kingdom is like. How you get into life in the kingdom, what it looks like, and what it's all about. Now, go and do that likewise, because now you know what life in the kingdom looks like. That's what the miracles were about. In his kingdom, the blind will now see. The deaf will hear, and the poor will have the good news preached to them. Now go do that. Go bring miracles and preach the gospel to the poor and proclaim captive, that the captives can be released. That's why there's so much in the middle, because Jesus is doing so much more. But what he's doing, he now is calling us to follow. You see, the reason why God hasn't defeated evil yet is because he's giving the opportunity for the world to know. But Jesus has left. And the only way the world knows is through our proclamation. Through us proclaiming the gospel. So what we see in the gospels, and this one, Jesus is going to wreck our lives. Because as we read the gospels and in the gospel of Luke, and we're going to see what Jesus says. Give without expecting anything in return. Love your neighbor as you... Love your enemies. Blessed are the poor. Woe to you, rich, you who are well-fed, because you will go hungry. We're like, oh, okay, what do I do with that? As we wrestle with who this Jesus is, and what he calls us to do, what we're going to find out is he's preaching and proclaiming and teaching and showing what the kingdom of God looks like so that we now know what our job is. But there's one more caveat, and that caveat is this. The kingdom of God is the way of the cross. If you want to be my disciple, 
take up your cross and follow me. You see, it's not a life of, if you just accept Jesus as your Savior, you get to go to heaven when you die, sit back, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's why these young people thought they were lied to. Because it's not sit back, eat, and drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's, now take up your cross and follow me, and go live in the midst of that world out there and make a difference in it. And fix this mess. Because you see, the atheist still has that argument out there. Why is there so much suffering in the world? And the answer is because we're not doing our job well enough. Because if we do our job well enough, that stuff begins to get fixed. Oh, it's going to be out there. But it begins to get fixed. So as we go to prayer, and then shortly here to communion, I want to give you the opportunity to think about this. If you've never really committed to following Jesus, I challenge you to come next 8, 10, 12, however many Sundays it's going to be as we go to Luke, to find out who this man is and to begin to follow him. For those of you who come regularly and have been following Jesus for three years or five years or 50 years, I want to challenge you. Renew your heart again this morning to finding out again, anew, afresh, who this Jesus is and let him just mess with you. Because we need to be messed with. Sometimes we get comfortable. Sometimes we get a let, Let's just let, let Jesus wreck our world. And let's follow him. As we come to communion in a few moments, take communion with that being our meditation. Christ, I'm taking this communion and I'm vowing to follow you wherever you lead. You're the one that's making something out of this mess. You're the one that's redeeming this. You're the one that's provided the answer and the solution. The solution is resurrection and new creation. Let me close in prayer. And then in a moment when we go to our song, those of you parents that want to get your kids to bring them back to take communion with us, you can go ahead and get your kids and we'll sing a song and then we'll take communion. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we see how the world has offers many solutions to what the problem even is and solutions to that problem. And yet they all seem to come up lacking. We like solutions, Lord, that are easy for us. We like solutions that don't make us uncomfortable. We like solutions that don't mess with our lives because we're comfortable with our lives. We like to do the things we do. We like to eat the foods we eat. We like to go to the places we go. We like to watch the things we watch. We like to buy the things we buy. We want to be comfortable. And if we can throw religion on the top to make us even feel more comfortable, that's great. But then we meet Jesus. And he says, follow me. Maybe we're not asked to give up everything, and maybe we are asked to give up everything. But we are asked to give it all to you and let you do with it as you want. And we thank you that you have come in love and in gentleness. You didn't come with lights and a circus and a show and a palace with splendor. You came as one of us. And you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You brought us atonement, punishment and payment for our sins. You defeated death, because that's the problem, and have risen again that we too, though we die, we will live. And we ask now, Lord, that you would help us to ask the question, who is this man? 
and to allow you to transform our hearts to following you, whatever it may mean. So Lord, if there's people that are coming to accept you, whatever that may mean for the first time, we pray that they would come forward at the end of our service and meet with anyone who's up here for prayer. For those who need to rededicate and recommit their lives or, or just wish to recommit, that they might come forward in prayer and that we, as the body of Christ, would be unified, not individual people, but we would be one in the body of Christ. We thank you and praise you for all that you've given to us now. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.